Hello and welcome to episode 81 of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. My name's Colin Yeo and I'm joined by my colleague CJ McKinney. This month we are kicking off with a big ruling on deportation law before turning some draft laws affecting EU citizens in the UK. The visa rules for students changed on the 5th of October and we're going to discuss some of those tweaks before moving over to economic migration and the elusive immigration health surcharge rise, which has actually been pinned down literally today, the day that we're we're recording. Um, We're going to finish off with some judgments on asylum and immigration detention. And we're covering basically um, the blog posts from September 2020. If you'd like to claim CPD points for reading the material and listening to the podcast, then head over to Free Movement and sign up as a member. We've now got well over 100 CPD hours of training materials, and it is the end of the training year coming up. So um, now is the time to get a wiggle on with that kind of thing. Right, CJ, over to you. Thanks, Colin. Top of the billing this month is a major case on deportation, HA Iraq 2020 EWCA Civ 1176. It's from the Court of Appeal, and Nick Nason, who wrote up the decision for us, calls it far-reaching and important. And there's actually several facets to that importance, but we'll maybe just focus on one, at least to begin with, um, which is to do with the unduly harsh test in deportation law. This is where someone sentenced to between one and four years for a criminal offence can avoid deportation if it would be unduly harsh on their child or children. Simplifying a little as ever for podcast purposes. So in the Supreme Court decision of KO Nigeria a couple of years ago, the court said that what unduly harsh means is, quote, a degree of harshness going beyond what would necessarily be involved for any child faced with a deportation of a parent, end quote. So that set a pretty high bar to clear. But now in the this HA Iraq case, the Court of Appeal has clarified that this, quote, can't be taken entirely literally, is what they say, and that what uh, Lord Carnwath, who wrote the judgment, actually meant was that we're looking here for harshness of, and I'm quoting the Court of Appeal again, a sufficiently elevated degree to outweigh that public interest in the deportation of foreign criminals. And the court also emphasised that this test can't be as stringent as the very compelling circumstances test, which is faced by offenders with a sentence of more than four years. So some softening of the law here, Carl? Yeah, I think it'd be dangerous to say softening, um, but I think it's a really helpful um, clarification of, of what was said in the Supreme Court. Because, and, and as t- we're talking to Nick about this, and um, just that sort of overwhelming feeling reading the judgment was just one of relief, basically, because the bar had been set so outrageously high by the way that KO Nigeria had previously been read that it was really hard to succeed in deportation cases, even where the consequences for the child were, were going to be really pretty awful. And, and you know, the, the problem is deportation cases often do involve pretty awful consequences, but um, there had to be some sort of really unusual standout principle. And the, the, the starting point for judges seemed to be that you know, basically um, that, that you can't win on that ground unless there's some sort of standout exceptional feature. Um, and this lowers the bar a little bit, although not a lot, frankly. Um, and it, it's just a really useful judgment. Um, so I, one of the one of the sort of standout quotes to me is where I think it's Underhill, um, Lord, Ju- Lord Justice Underhill gives the le- leading judgment. And he says that there's no reason in principle why cases of undue harshness may not occur quite commonly. And he's not saying it is going to occur commonly or it'll be commonplace or anything like that. But, you know, it, there, this kind of bar of really, truly, majorly exceptional or whatever the you know, latest linguistic formulation is, 
um it, it isn't necessarily the right one um it's quite an amusing judgment to read as well because you know all this business about not taking things literally is it's exactly what um the tribunal and in fact the court of appeal had been previously doing with those words so you know this this contradicts several previous courts of appeal cases which isn't the normal run of things you know normally it takes a supreme court intervention to kind of go behind previous judgments um so hopefully this will stick. Um, I, I I don't know. We'll have to we'll have to wait and see. And I guess it's one of those kind of only time will tell type things. Yeah, I mean, is it sort of a high powered bench, or the fact that it's sort of such a big and detailed decision does that maybe mean it's more likely to stick as opposed to? The Court of Appeal next month hands down a different decision, then we're kind of back to square one. And it's a pretty high prof- profile um, panel, but no, you're not super high profile. <laughs> I don't know if this is all how you how you grade these things, but um, it's I suppose it is. It's a proper consideration of Ko Nigeria and subsequent cases. So it would be genuinely extraordinary to see um, sort of another panel go back the other in the other direction, despite this very reasoned. A very detailed examination of the issue, but it's not to say it's necessarily the end. And I, I, I haven't heard that there's any application to the Supreme Court from the Home Office in this one. And it, it could be that there's some, you know, the, some subtle undermining of some sort in the course of appeal or the, the upper tribunal. I don't know. I mean, some, some judges do seem quite attached to this very literal interpretation of K in Nigeria. Um, I don't know. I say time, time will tell, but it, it certainly, you know, it's a really very welcome judgment, and hopefully, it will stick. Next to Brexit, and regular listeners will know that Brexit has technically happened, but nothing has really changed because of the transition periods that we're in, but will end and must end on the 31st of December. No more extensions. We've now had several sets of regulations laid before Parliament that deal with the position of EU citizens after the end of this transition period. And the first set are to do with the grace period for applying for the right to remain long term. So EU free movement rights are being switched off from the 31st of December, but existing residents have until the 30th of June 2021 to apply for settled status. So what's their legal status in that six-month period if they haven't already applied? And the answer is in the draft citizens' rights application deadline and temporary protection EU exit regulations 2020. And they essentially say that EU law rights, as we know them today, in the form of the EEA regulations, will continue to apply to the people I've just described during this period. So they're kind of covered legally until such time as they uh, apply uh, for a set under the EU settlement scheme uh, before the 30th of June. I mean, there is a problem that our article on this identifies, which is that if you don't have EU free movement rights to begin with, then carrying over the EEA regulations doesn't exactly help you. And this is that comprehensive sickness insurance points that is Ringer's ugly head again, I think. Yeah, it, it, this keeps on coming up, doesn't it? And it's it's bizarre to think that this is kind of, it's just an invention of the Home Office in about 2011. And you know, before that, CSI wasn't considered to be necessary for students or self-sufficient people. And, and since then, um, you know, it, it, it has been considered to be necessary and, and unfortunately was upheld by the Court of Appeal. And and this group of people are, as things stand, left out in the um 
is it the dry high or the low wet? I'm not quite sure. Anyway, they're, they're in trouble. Left, left high and dry. Isn't that <laughs> something, it's like, something like that. I get, I get really confused with my metaphors. It's the first evening recording we've done this. I've just, just been drinking wine to try and help myself get through this. Normally we're doing this in broad daylight and uh, I think the fact it's dark is affecting me. Um, so um, yeah, it, but it, and it does, it leaves them out basically. Um, and that is, is a problem. And I think literally we'll, we'll cover this next month, but literally today, um, we've just been looking at um, further amendments to guidance, which which cause problems for this group with naturalisation applications as well. And the Home Office really seems to have it in for them. Um, I think it was probably an accident when it first started, but the, the, the Home Office seems to be really doubling down on it now. And unless they ever amend these regulations, then people who are self-sufficient or students with um, who, do, who don't have CSI basically uh, will become unlawfully resident from the 1st of January. And that's actually quite a substantial number of EU citizens. Um, so it's, it's quite worrying. Just to clarify, though, like they can still get pre-settled or settled status, even though they're technically unlawful. So, I mean, does it matter on a practical level? I suppose what you've, you've made the point about citizenship, it might matter then. Yeah, I, th- I think there's, some in- there's, there's an interesting legal debate, probably not to be had right now, about whether you're unlawfully resident, because you didn't need leave when you entered and the way that the law is framed, even though you don't have leave and you probably ought to, the fact that you haven't entered without leave make, makes a difference legally. So I, I don't know, but it's certainly not an enviable position to be in, which is where you don't have a lawful basis for your residence. And it will cause problems, as, as far as we can see from the, the updated guidance on, on naturalisation applications. It could have other ramifications as well. And for example, you'd be working illegally. Um, you know, If you don't have lawful status, it's it's effectively a... I don't think I don't think you need to have knowledge that you're not lawfully resident in order for that to be an offence. Um, so th- th- there are other consequences that flow from it as well. Yeah, yeah, okay. We'll we'll keep an eye on that one. There is another set of Brexity regulations this time to do with criminal deportation, and the context here is that EU law provides much stronger protection against being deported for a crime than domestic UK law and the government has has for a long time said it's going to apply UK deportation criteria to any crimes committed by EU citizens after the end of the famous transition period so if you commit a crime after the 31st of December you won't have that EU law protection and we now have draft regulations concerning that which is the citizens rights restrictions of rights of entry and residence EU exit regulations 2020. However, interestingly, uh, according to Ian Holiday, who wrote about the regulations for us, they don't appear to be following through on what the government said they were going to do and, and switch off these EU law deportation protections for existing residents, even if they commit a crime after the 31st of December. It'll only be, on, on Ian's analysis, new arrivals who will be subject to the domestic deportation rules. So basically what we think is that which deportation criteria apply to you as an EU citizen will solely depend on what date you arrived in the UK. If it was before 31st of December this year, EU law protections, if it, if you arrive after that, domestic law applies. We were talking about this earlier, Colin. Did, did you have a chance to could see if you agreed with that uh, interpretation? Well, I, I saw I saw this. I read Ian's post, and I, I haven't looked at the regs yet. I have to confess. Um, I'm assuming that he's right on this. It, it does seem quite surprising, frankly, that the government is being more generous on deportation than they said they would be. Um, I suspect it's a mistake. 
Um, it's not really one that we want to draw to their attention, I guess. Um, don't imagine that Pretty Patel listens to the podcast. Um, I hope, hope not. So I, I don't know. And it just seems surprising that, um, you know, that they're not um, being harsh when there there is an opportunity to be harsh. Um, but And we just don't know if this is deliberate policy, change of policy or, or not. So I guess it's a question of watching this space. Finally, on the Brexit topic, uh, we had a... a- very popular article by Mark Lazarowicz, who's a barrister in Scotland and a former Labour MP, interestingly, which I didn't know until uh, after we published this piece. And he reckons there are some EU citizens who are still living in, in elsewhere in Europe who are thinking about popping into the UK very briefly, essentially, before the end of transition, applying for a pre-settled status just in case they ever want to move here in future. But what he points out is that you can't just be physically present in the UK on the you know, in late December in a hotel somewhere, you're supposed to have taken up residence here. And even if that residence is very recent, it has to be residence, has to be a move rather than a visit. Um, so take a look if that's relevant to you or anyone you know or any Facebook groups you may be in. Uh, it's called Applying for Settled and Pre-Settled Status Requires Genuine Residence is the headline. So with that brings us... Oops, sorry, Colin, yeah, go on. Well, just a quick one. I, I'm not sure Mark will necessarily thank you for saying that he's a barrister. He's an advocate at the Scottish Bar. Um, <laughs> I originally wrote advocate, and I thought it's, it's all pretty much the same, isn't it? But you're right. It, they, it they is are... pretty much the same. But yeah, I think it is It is. It is a bit... There's a distinction. Um, yeah, it's an interesting piece. I think it's, it's worth saying it's an opinion piece. Um, I, think he's pro- I, I think he's probably right. You know, because of the use of the word residence, I think it probably does imply something more than just physical presence. Um and you know, no doubt, if there's an opportunity to follow a hard line, then then the Home Office and the and the courts will take it. Um, but um, yeah, it, it, there's some ambiguity there. Okay, okay, good to know. We, let's move on to students. There's been a statement of changes to the immigration rules to revamp student visas. The routes have been rebranded, so Tier Four that terminology is dead, and the rules have been rewritten in supposedly a more simple style. The actual substantive changes to student visa rules are actually fairly minimal and mostly positive from an applicant's point of view. It's now easier to switch onto a student visa if you're already in the UK. The financial requirements are more flexible and there's now no upper limit on the length of graduate study as an overseas student. One uh, downside to be aware of, though, it's now easier for an application to be rejected as invalid rather than refused which might have negative consequences for some student applicants. Yeah, I, I've had a quick look at this and um, it's worth saying as well that, um, of course, these rules apply to EU citizens coming in to study from next year, which is just, and that's just a big shock to the system and to a way of thinking. You know, the idea that an EU citizen has to apply for an entry clearance before coming here is is such a huge change. I think we, we have to flag that. But yeah, as you say, the, the actual changes to the existing student rule within the rules are, are relatively minor. Um, it, it's not hugely promising that these are the first version of the simple rules and there's basically five appendices. Um, but I got, God knows what's going on on that front. Um, we'll, we'll just Again, we'll just have to see. Absolutely. Uh, and just a flag, if uh, anyone wants more on this, I've done a whole separate podcast on the student visa changes with Tom Brett Young from VWV. So uh, look that up if you want the detail. Let's go to economic migration, and there are changes imminent, again, as you were saying, as part of the simplification drive and as part of the post-Brexit points-based system from the 1st of January. We are not going to be talking any longer about Tier 2 work visas. It's going to be the 
the skilled worker visa and the intra-company transfer visa and so on. Uh, the, the rules haven't been changed yet, but we do have advance notice now of one substantive change that is going to be coming in on top of this rebranding. There will no longer be a cooling off period for either of those routes, uh, skilled worker and intra-company transfer. And uh, this is according to a presentation to stakeholders that Nicola Carter attended and took a screenshot of with great presence of mind. Uh, so it comes from the Home Office and uh, a cooling off period for those who don't do business immigration is basically if your tier two work visa expires, if you don't extend this, it just runs out, then you can't get another one for 12 months. That's the cooling off period and that's being scrapped. So uh, a helpful change, but as you say, Colin, kind of dwarfed by the fact that now all EU citizens are going to need these work visas <laughs> from January. Yeah, it's just, it's mind-blowing that. I think it's worth saying that the reason that Nicola has, has specifically flagged this up is that um, some people might be planning ahead. And if their visa, current visa expires after the 1st of January um, 2021, then uh, if they were thinking they, that a cooling off period applied, it doesn't, as far as we can see. I know. That's what the Home Office say now. Yeah, that has to be taken as, as not a guarantee on our part or anything, but that's how it looks like things are going to be for forward planning purposes. Yeah, absolutely. We'll await the actual statement of changes to the rules. Uh, there is also a proposal for a revised shortage occupation list. And under the new system, a job being included on this list basically means it can be sponsored at a salary down to £20,480. Uh, whereas the minimum salary for non-shortage jobs will be £25,600, so 20% higher, unless the person has a PhD. So the list uh, has great importance under the new system, and the Migration Advisory Committee is recommending that it be considerably expanded, and there'll be 17 new types of job on the shortage list, including pharmacists, senior care workers, nursing assistants, uh, butchers, bricklayers, and welders. Uh, so the list, the recommendation is only a recommendation from the committee, but as far as I know, the Home Office has always just accepted those recommendations when it comes to the shortage list. Yeah, so we're, we're expecting that to go through. I think before we leave this one, CJ, if I told you before you started with me that um, you'd find yourself writing the sentence, there is also good news for vent chicken sexes, look it up, and deckhands working on large fishing vessels, nine metres and above, since you ask, would, would, you, would you have taken the job? <laughs> Uh, so I, I'd actually heard of vent chicken sectors before. They, they were in the news like five years ago. They they look at the bottoms of chickens by eye and and see what gender they are. It's a very skilled job, and and they are now going to be sponsorable under the new system. So, well, you dodged that question very neatly there. Let's move on. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, let's move on to frontier workers who are basically people commuting into the UK for work say, on the Eurostar from France uh, on a sort of weekly basis, which might seem a bit niche, uh, but people do do it. I, I've been travelling between London and the Netherlands myself for the past year or so, so it's a real thing. And those people currently rely on EU free movement rights, uh, which are on the way out, obviously, but existing frontier workers who start doing it uh, before the... F who start frontier working before the 1st of January will be able to apply for frontier worker permits to keep doing it after the transition period ends. And these are yet another set of draft regulations, the Citizens' Rights Frontier Workers EU Exit Regulations 2020, analysed for us on the website by Joanna Hunt. 
And I think Joe is maybe one of the few people in the world to find this subject interesting. <laughs> I don't know if it does anything for you. I, I always glaze over when I start hearing about frontier workers. Yeah, it, it's it's hard to get interested in, in in things that don't affect that many people. But of course, the people it does affect, it profoundly affects. And in fact, the, the main group it, it isn't likely to be Eurostar travellers so much as EU citizens resident in Ireland who aren't Irish citizens, but cross over into Northern Ireland. Um, so, and, and there could be... I don't know how many, not a lot, but but a few at least. And, um, you know, if they're resident in um, the Republic of Ireland, then they're going to need one of these permits to carry on working in Northern Ireland, basically. Very good point. Let's just talk briefly. You mentioned at the outset the immigration health surcharge. Uh, this is the 400 pound a year annual visa tax, essentially, uh, the money going to the NHS. Um, that is going, we, we've known for a long time that that's going to go from £400 a year to £624 a year. And that increase was originally scheduled for the 1st of October. But the regulations authorising the increase weren't uh, signed in time, basically. Um, but they have been this very day uh, the that we're recording the podcast, which is the 6th of October. And they come into force 21 days from now. So the 27th of October is the... Uh, date of the immigration surcharge increase and applications uh, submitted before that date will be hundreds of pounds cheaper so that will be a big day for many practitioners i expect yeah get a move on with making applications now if you can i'd love to know what happened behind the scenes here and i can't think it's anything else other than a huge screw-up by somebody um i can't imagine it was a deliberate delay Uh, certainly there was no announcement made to that effect so it just looks like somebody forgot basically Let's go on to asylum. And we reported recently that the Home Office is planning to bring in private firms to carry out interviews with asylum seekers. That's according to the head of the asylum operations team at the Home Office, who wrote to stakeholders on the 22nd of September announcing a pilot scheme. So staff from a commercial contractor will, probably one of the usual Circo G4S type firms, will come in to do some uh, interviews with real asylum seekers i think as a sort of proof of concept um although interview preparations and final decision making will remain at the home office um, for now at least um refugee groups like freedom from torture say it's a dangerous idea and there's been a lot of pushback but in fairness to the home office like there is this massive backlog of people waiting to be interviewed so perhaps this is a creative solution well, creative, certainly. Solution, I'm not so sure about that. Um, it sounds like a terrible, terrible idea. But the, and there is a huge backlog. It, it really does need to be addressed because we treat asylum seekers so appallingly with squalid accommodation and you know, really minimal support. Loads of them are actually genuine refugees. You know, we're talking about over 70% ultimately get asylum. And yet they're waiting in this sort of horrible sort of support situation for ages at the moment. Um, but that's not to say that this is a good idea at all. It'd be much better to just put some proper resources into home office interviewers. And it it, it, it does occur to me that I, know, I wonder if outsourced interviewers would do a worse job than some of the home office caseworkers, frankly. But um, you know, they, they wouldn't necessarily be trained in this kind of culture of disbelief that seems to permeate the home office. But that 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 is super optimistic, and you know certainly there's no basis for that that optimism. Um, but but you know, I'm, I'm trying to find some sort of silver lining to this. Well, yeah, we'll see what happens with the pilot. 
Uh, let's turn then to our case law on asylum, and the Court of Appeal has backed a High Court judge's decision to bring an asylum seeker back to the UK five years after she was first removed under uh, the fast track, the old fast track asylum process. She was from Uganda and is claiming asylum on the basis of her sexuality. The appeal, the Court of Appeal case, wouldn't have affected her since she's already back, but the Home Office was trying to attack the principle that it can be ordered to bring people back if they've been removed unlawfully, uh, and they failed. The Court of Appeal found that the judge had legitimate and proper reasons for reaching his decision, and that was in the case of uh, PN Uganda 2020 EWCA Civ 1213. But there's also a country guidance case on Sudan. The upper tribunal held there is no general risk of persecution for Nuba people in Sudan maybe wider significance to the case for other Sudanese asylum seekers because the tribunal is heavily influenced by the improving political situation there and by the same token it might be tempted to revisit the question of risk for other ethnic groups such as uh, non-Arab Darfuris in a future case so uh, not going to be easy for Nuba people to get asylum in the UK basically and a warning flag potentially for other uh, Sudanese asylum seekers that case, AM Nuba Return, Sudan, CG, 2020, UKUT 269, IAC. And finally, Colin, you wrote up this case about exclusion from refugee status. And this is where if someone has committed war crimes or some other very heinous offences, they can be excluded from the refugee convention, even though they might otherwise qualify as refugee. And the person in this case was a doctor who'd worked at a torture facility in Iraq, presumably under the Saddam Hussein regime, and treated he had treated victims of torture. Um, and he'd been around the courts a few times appealing against his exclusion from refugee protection, basically arguing that he didn't torture anyone, he just did his job as a doctor. And he succeeded in that argument. Yeah, it's a funny, it's a funny case, this one. I, the, the facts are very striking. Um, and you can see why the Home Office investigated this as an exclusion case. Um, he'd been struck off by a medical um, tribunal on on the same facts, for example. And it kind of, I suppose it, it maybe at first glance, it feels like an exclusion case. Um, you know, military doctor meets torture victims and so on. Um, but when you actually start to really think about it, as the you know, tribunal eventually did in this case and under virtually gunpoint from the, from the Court of Appeal, having, you know, having been sent back, um it kind of that falls apart because what else was this guy supposed to do he was employed by the military it's a repressive regime um you know he wasn't going to break him out or something so it, you know the, the kind of home office arguments ended up being really very weak um but you know this has already been to the tribunal at least once before it's a very long running case um and it's taken a long time for for this to get closed closed off. But you wouldn't know any of that from the headnote, um, which has got nothing to do with the exclusion clauses. It, it's you know totally obscure. Um, the title's totally obscure, and you know it, it's just you wonder what the upper tribunal is doing with the reporting committee, and and just these headnotes that seem to bear very little relation to the actual um, underlying underlying case. So quite quite weird, frankly. Uh, the obscure title of the case you mentioned is AB Preserved, Preserved FTT Findings Wisniewski Principles Iraq 2020 UKUT 268 IAC. 
And finally, uh, there's quite a big case on immigration bail, which uh, we've left to last for reasons that I'll explain momentarily. But uh, the context is that ever since uh, there were major changes to the immigration bail system in January 2018, it's been extremely difficult to get government accommodation to stay in while you're out on bail if you've nowhere else to go. And this is often... partly because the person being bailed is a serious criminal offender and they need somewhere suitable for the risk that they may pose to the public. But the judge will have considered this risk in granting them bail in the first place, and the Home Office seemed to manage to find people places to stay before January 2018. But over the past couple of years, people have been just stuck in detention for lack of anywhere else to go, and that the High Court has now ruled that this system is systemically unfair. And that case is Humnitsky 2020 EW. HC1912 admin. And the decision was handed down actually in July this year, but we held off on reporting it until recently at the request of the legal team representing the detainees who who wanted to be sure that the government weren't appealing before they kind of made a big song and dance about the ruling. So we obliged. Uh, but will there be major implications, do you think, Colin? Yeah, there are, and this is a big, really big case. It's a, it's one of those cases that doesn't actually affect that many people, but the people it affects are really profoundly affected. And it's people ending up in, in detention for months and months, longer than they should have been, because of the kind of really Kafkaesque nature of this this system. And, you know, that that's a... Kafkaesque is a word that gets bandied about uh, rather too much, but this what this system really is just otherworldly. Um, it's kind of it deliberately made as impossible as possible to get um, accommodation. And the judge isn't saying, oh, this is a bit unlawful. The judge says this is really unlawful, um, doesn't even come close to the, the necessary standards and so on. So it's a really strong judgment. And um, Frank, I, I'm just amazed that the Home Office isn't appealing it because, you know, if if they if they knew it was this bad and they accept it's that bad how how did they start doing it in the first place it's it's one of those cases that sort of makes you stop and think what is going on um with sort of policy development and legal advice that they're getting and and that kind of thing so no it's it's, it's really good news and um it, it will really help those um who, who are affected by it it's basically people who haven't claimed asylum um and who are, who are going to be destitute and can't find accommodation by other means. Um, I don't know what's actually happening on the ground as a result of this. Um, I don't know what new system is being introduced. I was going to ask, yeah, because it's, it's a strong judgment, but it, it just says basically this is completely unlawful, go away and change it. And it's kind of up to the Home Office, right, what they do to change it and perhaps how long they take to do it. Yeah, yeah, which is never terribly, uh, they're never terribly prompt about these things. Um, I guess w- when we do hear something, uh, maybe maybe we ought to get in touch with Bid and, and, and see if we can find find something out. But um, when we do hear something, we'll obviously update people on the blog. Right, I think that wraps up for this month. So hopefully that was useful and we'll be back next month. Goodbye. <laughs>